0: I am going to attempt to keep my suit jacket on through the serving, but there's no guarantees. I wore this today because this is what I wore to the wedding. This is what Maddie wanted me to wear. And uh, so since she was wearing her wedding attire, I said I'd wear mine. Now, I did ask this morning, and she wouldn't let me, I was going to wear my green bow tie instead of this tie. And she goes, no. So you got this outfit instead. One of the things that we went and saw while Maddie and I were on our honeymoon was the Creation Museum. And in the Creation Museum, it talked about one of the things that it talked about was something that I had heard and 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 I guess known in the back of my head, but had never really considered. And I took a picture of it and I went, we need to talk about that. That's my that's my type of sermons. Those are my types of sermons. So over the next seven weeks, technically eight, because at the lake we're not going to talk about this, we're going to talk about something else, we are going to look at the seven plagues of Egypt one at a time. And it's good to remind ourselves of stuff like that, but the main reason we're going to talk about this is because one of the aspects that doesn't often get talked about with those plagues is that God was not just judging Egypt for the 400 years of slavery to his people. No, he was also proving to Egypt and to Israel and to the rest of the known world who is actually in charge. And each of the seven plagues directly destroys, technically eight, because there's two that he does with the first plague, Egyptian gods and goddesses, and says, look, I'm more powerful than them. They don't even exist. They're nothing. So I thought we could talk about that because, you know, in today's world, we're told many different things that, that, you know, about God and about uh, uh, Christianity and we're told what we should and shouldn't believe in a lot of ways. Like, oh, that's an antiquated belief. I don't really care how old the belief is if it's in here. We're told God's out of touch with reality or maybe reality is out of touch with God. And one day... We're not going to talk about this as, as much. Maybe we'll end it. Maybe it'll be nine weeks and we'll end with this sermon because sometimes God hits me upside the head at times with sermons. We'll talk about how God is going to prove himself to be greater than the God of this world in the end. We sang about it this morning. Maybe we'll talk about that at the end, how we've set up a God and he's going to come and crush it and show once and for all who is in charge. But let's talk about the Egyptian ones, shall we? We're going to be in Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. That's the second book of your Bible. We skipped last week we were in Genesis. This week we're in Exodus. Next week we will not be in Leviticus. We'll still be in Exodus. Chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. Your pastor did not put his little thing in there, so we had to go and find it. And uh, I want to say a couple things off the top. We don't know if this is how these God's names were said. I will guarantee you that they're not, because I'm American. And we don't say words that we know how to say them correctly, right? So I can all but guarantee you that these are not exactly how they're going to be said, but I'm going to do my best. I'm also going to tell you that this was 4,000 some odd years ago, so there's information about some of these gods that have been lost. So there might be blanks in there that you go, well, what about this? We don't know. It's lost to history. The other thing I want to point out is, and my friend Drucker pointed this out yesterday. If you're wondering if when God curses a nation, it ever recovers, it doesn't. Egypt has never been the same since those days. Egypt, back in those days, was the premier world power. Now, I'm not saying that they didn't have influence and wealth and such after that. They did, but they were never the dominant force in the world again at any point. God so thoroughly destroys them, their economy, their way of life, everything, that they never recovered. God's retribution is swift sometimes. Sometimes it takes some time. We like to think that these happened in over like a seven-day period. It, It didn't. It was months. Months of plagues. But it's strong. And I say that to say this. Do not set yourself up against the people of God, be they Israel or Christians, because he does take care of you. And in more the mafia way than the, oh, here's a piece of bread. Let's read it, shall we? Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. Sorry, it's too hot. Verses, 7, or verses 14 through 25. It reads, The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Oh, I did not change the, uh, the uh, verses there. Nope, I did. I'm in chapter 14. Give me a moment to flip back to chapter 7. There are times I think I'm dyslexic, not like fully dyslexic, but I actually think it's the ADD because my brain just sees something and it goes, yeah, that works, let's go with that. Chapter 7, verse 14, here it is, water is turned to blood. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn, he refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water and station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile and you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent. You shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me, to say, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, you have not listened until now. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood." The fish that are in the Nile will die, and the Nile will become foul, and the Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking water from the Nile. I'd say so. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, over their streams, and over their pools, and over all the reservoirs of water, that they may become blood, and there will be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Verse 20. Verse 20. So Moses and Aaron did, even as the Lord had commanded. And he lifted up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of the servants. And all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish that were in the Nile died, and the Nile became foul, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. And the blood was through all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then Pharaoh turned and went into his house with no concern even for this. So all the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink of the water of the Nile. Seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Let's talk about a few things here. First off, number one on your note sheet there is the Egyptian gods. Little g, the Egyptian gods. The first god, and like I said, there are two that God says, I'm I'm, more than them in this passage of Scripture. The first one's name is Happy, or Happy, Pick your favorite. He was the god of the Nile River. Now, the Nile River, of course, is the life-giving body of water to the Egyptians. Their towns, their cities, everything was built around the Nile, and every year, the Nile would flood, making surrounding land fertile for growing. Literally, the Egyptian empire could not exist without the Nile River. And it's the very first thing God attacks. So we have the god of the Nile. Oh, you can put up that next slide. He's on the right up there. There's two pictures of each, two, de- or, uh, two depictions of each. Now, you'll notice possibly that the god on the left seems to have a large stomach and breasts. But I said he was a guy. Yeah, I don't make the rules. It is a guy in their, in their mythology. And he was depicted like that because of fertility, because the Nile gave fertility to the land. Okay, he's often depicted carrying offerings of food or pouring out water. The one on the left is Hadmiat, sometimes spelled, you'll see on your your note sheet there a little bit differently, but it's said the same. And she is the goddess of fish. And sometimes, I didn't put this picture up there because it was really weird to me. Sometimes she is depicted not with a head, but with like four fish sprouting from her chest right here, like where your neck would come out. It's weird to me, but either way, so that's the picture of Hemet, and she is the goddess of fish, and her name translates roughly to foremost of fish or chief of fish. Those are the gods that God is saying, listen, I'm stronger than them. So what does he do, right? He says, listen, I'm going to make the Nile River, and when you're in Sunday school, a lot of times you learn it's the Nile River. And they don't talk about the fact that it appears here when you read in Scripture, it was not just the Nile River, but it was any water that came from the Nile, be it a tributary, be it water that was already collected in stone or wood basins, any water that comes from the Nile is turned to blood. It's not turned red. It's not a whole bunch. Right? We see this sometimes in modern day. You see water will turn red with a lot of algae or something like that. No, no. It's turned to blood. All of the fish die. There's also a massive fishing industry. So now you've wiped out the major food source, the major water source of this nation. In the blink of an eye. And God's telling a few things to a few people here. First off, God to Moses and Aaron—that's your number two there. God to Moses and Aaron. He's saying, "Listen, trust me. I'm going to do what I say." We've seen him do things in the past already. Right? A few uh, a chapter or two earlier, we see that when when Moses and Aaron cast down their staves, they turned to snakes. And then the Egyptian magicians are like, "Well, we can do that too." And they make it. Now, whether it's demonic, whether it was a sleight of hand, we don't know. It doesn't say. But there are two other snakes there, and we read that Moses. And Aaron's staffs, snakes, eat those ones just to show, yeah, you might have snakes, but ours are better. And we see that you know, we've seen God do these incredible things through Moses and Aaron, and yet somehow they still don't fully trust him all the time. We read that as we go a little bit further into it, that they still are kind of at times go, well, God, is that really what's gonna happen? And we say to ourselves, right, we look back at the Israelites and we say to ourselves so often, how could they be so dumb? How could they miss it so easily? Look at all that God has done. Just look back on it. And my response to you is, how could you be so dumb? Look at what God has done. You have 6,000 years of proof of God. How could you be so dumb? How could I be so dumb? Because I'm an idiot too. And so he's showing them, listen, what I say is going to happen is going to happen. The other thing I want to point out, and I did not write this on your notes because I didn't think of it when I made the note sheet and I wasn't going to reprint out all of the note sheets, so you can write it down there. Who performed the miracle? God, if you can call it a miracle. It's kind of the opposite of a miracle, I guess, but usually a miracle is helpful. But did Moses and Aaron have to do something? Yes, they did. He told them to go and do something. They didn't turn the water to blood. But they were still told to stretch out their staves and such. Oftentimes, it is very, very rare when God says, stand back, I'm going to do everything. Most of the time he says, I'm going to be the one that does it. But I need you to keep working nonetheless. I'm going to be the one that does something, right? Fast forward a certain amount of time when they're standing next to the Red Sea. God parts it, but Moses has to stand there like this. It's not often a hard thing he asks us to do. Sometimes it is, but he still asks us to do. And I think it takes more faith to say, okay, God, I will do what you've asked of me and trust that you're gonna do something than to say, no, God, I'm gonna step back and not do anything and make sure you just do it all. He still does it all, don't misunderstand me. But he's the one that asks us to work. So if you're wondering, why hasn't this thing changed in my life? Maybe it's because you're sitting back and doing nothing. And God's saying, hey, why don't you go walk around the walls of Jericho 13 total times? Won't make any sense to anybody, but you know what? Those walls will fall if you do it. Trust me. Just maybe. And then number three on your note sheet there, and I know we're flying through this. We're going to take a little bit of time here now. Number three in your note sheet there is God to the Egyptians and the Israelites. We often talk about how God is judging Egypt during this, and he is. He's not judging Israel. But he is teaching them the same lessons as he's teaching Egypt in a lot of ways. First off there, right, his superiority over the Egyptian gods. Israel does not follow God anymore. There are sects, there are people. But Israel as a whole has spent 450-some-odd years in captivity in a land that serves multiple gods. You really don't think most of them weren't serving those gods as well? It takes like six months for us to change something. They were there for generations they weren't serving the one true God anymore. And so God, before he takes them out into the wilderness to take them to the promised land, before he can have them serve him again, he goes, I need to remind you who is in control and I need to teach the Egyptians who is in control. They might set up their gods and their goddesses and they burn offerings and they do all this kind of stuff, but I am the one true God. Notice the word Lord there, it's, if, if it's uh, up there as well. It's all caps you'll notice there's two lords in scripture capital l and then lowercase o-r-d and then all caps when it is all caps that is god saying i am the lord i am yahweh i am the i am when it's the lower cases, that's usually when it's jesus speaking while he's on earth, or if you see them say, well, this is my Lord, my master, that sort of thing. God is here saying, I am the Lord. I am the I am. Everything exists because of me. Everything ends because I allow it. There is nothing that happens that I am not in control of. I am the I am. That's my favorite name for God in all of scripture because it just encompasses everything. And it's the only name that he tells us to call him. It's the only name he gives himself is Yahweh. Now we know he, you have Jehovah Jireh and stuff like that. But that's the only name he specifically calls himself. He does say to call me other things at times. The Lord provides and stuff like that. But that is the only name he specifically says I am. The I am. I find that So interesting and also so cool. So his superiority over Egyptian gods as well, he's showing his control over rivers and water and animals. These things that you find life-sustaining, they're there because of me. I'm in control of them. Nobody else is. No God besides me. And then lastly, maybe not lastly, but lastly for this, and maybe the most important one there, is that he's the provider not a river, not an animal, not growing plants. I am the provider. Now, yes, I use these things to provide for you, but they don't provide. I do it. I sustain you. See, he's got to teach the Israelites this because they need to know if they're going to follow him, right? If I just came up to you, right, and was like, hey, y'all want to go on a walk for a long ways? And leave your wife and everything behind? You wouldn't just follow me. You would need some uh, assurances, some proof. We're idiots. God's not. So he says, listen, I'm going to show you who I am. Follow me. I provide. I'm the one that does it. Now as we read this section, you'll see there at the end that as well... The magicians of Egypt were able to take some water and turn it into blood. No, the Bible is not wrong. It was not, oh, well, we say it's blood, but it was actually just water with food dye in it. They were able to turn it into blood. And you might say, Pastor, doesn't that just throw out what God did? Because if these men can do it with their gods, can't God do it? Let me point a few things out. One, the amount of water that was turned to blood. Literally, the Nile River, all of its tributaries and any water that had come out of the Nile, versus a couple of cups. And secondly, there is a reason that God allows this to happen. We're not going to flip there, but if you you do at some point, flip to Romans chapter 9. We read that Moses, not Moses, excuse me, God has hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh is. Is not going to let the Israelites go yet. It's not going to happen because God has to punish Egypt first. Because God has to teach Egypt a lesson for enslaving his people for 450 years. Pharaoh doesn't actually have a choice at this point. You might say, wow, that seems kind of vindictive from God. I'd say it's just. Because God's view of justice is not ours. God's view of justice is correct. Ours is not. So he allows this because it calms Pharaoh's heart. He goes, well, okay, so you guys could do it. So can mine. It was the same thing with the snakes turning, to, uh, turning the staffs to snakes. He's saying, listen, Pharaoh, I understand. Or, uh, he's, he's allowing Pharaoh to rationalize in his head and push it away and say, okay, God can do it, yep, he can do it, but my magicians can do it as well, so it's not that big a deal. You will see as we go further over these next couple of months, the magicians can no longer do what God does. God allows it here because he's letting Pharaoh's heart be hardened just a little bit more. Pharaoh's not concerned, right? We read right there, where is it? Uh, 23, verse 23, then Pharaoh turned and went into his house with no concern. He does not care. Also, let me ask you this. What kind of leader does not care that his people are now starving and uh, uh, dying of thirst? God's teaching a lesson here throughout this whole thing. The first one he teaches here about the gods is, I'm bigger than your river. I'm bigger than your fish. I'm the one. And I'm going to show you in six more plagues. He even attacks at one point, we'll, re, we'll talk about this when we get there a little bit more, but he even is able, I'm going to say able, we know he can do it. And he takes down the Egyptians' greatest god, the king of their gods, Ra, the sun god. And he says, I'll blot out the sun. It's going to be dark for a little bit. Because I'm the one that made it. and I'm the one that can turn it off. And back on again. At my whim if I wanted to. Now, thankfully, God doesn't have whims like I do. Because if I was the one in control of the sun, it would just be constantly going off and on. Just being honest with you. I like to have fun. I would think the sun going out for a minute. Can you imagine that? If I was just like, okay, and it's out. Everyone would just freak. It's back on. Oh, good. God's infinitely better than I am. We know that. But he's showing them, listen, I'm the one that's in control. So here's what you can take out of it, because we do need to bring it to present day. God is in control. Take out the river and the fish. Put in whatever it is that you view as your provider. Put in your job, put in your parents, put in your kids, put in whatever it is that you're saying, I, this, is my, this is my life, this is my sustainer, and God says no. I am bigger. And let me ask you, are you going to make him take it away? Oftentimes, and I've seen it in my life, I've told stories multiple times about the things God has taken away from me. Some of them he's given back. Some of them he has not. But things he has taken away from me to say, Sam, you set this up as the God. I'm the God. Not you. Not whatever this thing is, no matter how good it is. I am the one who is in control, not somebody else and not something else. So I ask you this morning, because here's the thing. Let's, let's all be honest with each other. And I'm choosing those words carefully because we do like to lie to each other about this stuff. I look at my dad because he edits the sermons and takes out when I say, let's be honest or let me be frank you Can leave this one in. We all have a Nile. We all like to keep it tucked away and hidden while we're in church because we don't want anybody else to see it. We all have something we think is more important to us and we've set it up as a God. Don't look at me and say you don't. You do. I don't have to know you very well to know that and I think I know most of you at least decently well. It could be something good like family friends, Christian music, Sunday morning service. It could be something bad, overuse of drugs, overuse of alcohol. It could be video games. My buddy yesterday, Maddie and I went out to dinner with my buddy Drucker, and he goes, Maddie, since you're not a gamer, what do you do for fun? Because Drucker and I both enjoy video games, but they can easily be a god. Sports. That's been one of mine on multiple occasions. And multiple times, God's taken it away from me. There's been once or twice when I have willfully given them up because God's been smart enough in me to allow me to do it. Let me rephrase that because I'm not saying God was stupid before. God allowed me to be smart enough to do it. Good or bad, it doesn't matter. We've all got them. Most of us, no, all of us have more than one. I don't care if you're the youngest person in here, which I think is Maddie, because you're younger than me, or the oldest person in here. I'm not going to (laughs) guess. We've all got them. Are you going to make God send a plague, or are you just going to willfully give it up? Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for this morning. We praise you that we have these examples to look back on, on things that you have done. Father, we can't thank you enough that you you don't send a plague like this our way. I've never broken out in boils or had my house filled with frogs because I wasn't paying attention to you. Because I wasn't saying who the real God is. But God, I ask you that you would convict in my heart the things that I have set up as gods and help me to tear them down in your power and your might. And I pray the same for each and every person who's in this room or might be watching now or later. You are the one that has the power to break down strongholds. And I ask that you would help us to allow you to do it. Father, it's in the name of your son that we pray. Amen and amen.